Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. All right, that music, that music is a clue, all right? And if you figure out what the, it's the clue to or what the answer to the clue is, you could uh, you could tweet at us at WNPRCon. I, I certainly like the idea that the entire nine-year existence of this show has been some horribly punishing game, like would be, as would be perpetrated on Michael Douglas in that movie, that you, in fact, have been trapped for nine years in, in some kind of radio game that you really can't ever possibly win. Uh, anyway, you've been given your first clue. After nine years, <laughs> you waited for nine years for your first clue. All right, so uh, joining us now is one of my favorite funny writers. She's more than a funny writer, though. Uh, I think, as we're going to make that point, I think that uh, Sloan Crosley's uh, work is um, both hilarious and uh, interestingly couched. So some of her funniest uh, material is couched in quasi-dire situations. Uh, she's the author of one novel, The Clasp. She was on to talk about that a few years ago. And three books of personal essays, I Was Told There'd Be Cake, How Did You Get This Number? And most recently, Look Alive Out There. That's the thing she's here to talk about today. Also contributing editor at Vanity Fair. I should say that Sloane Crosley was on our show about proms 12 years ago, and she was like the best guest. She was so great. She sort of you know, had exactly the right tone and knew how, the tone of our show, and knew how to joke around with the callers. And we got done with the show. We thought, well, we're just going to have Sloane Crosley on every six months. We'll just think of some other, you know, cute, funny, universal topic and we'll call her up. And then she got really famous and that didn't happen. Uh, but we're really happy to have her uh, on any day. Uh, and we are happy to have her today. Look Alive out there is um, a terrific collection of essays. So good that I was told by the other person in my house to stop laughing. Um, that, you know, if somebody else is sitting there reading a book and laughing really hard and you can't read the book while they're reading it. It really does become kind of annoying. I mean, I kind of got that. Uh, anyway, Sloane Crosley, welcome back to our show. Thank you. That was a beautiful introduction. And, it, was a lo- it was a long introduction. My my invites for this regular appearance, these regular <laughs> appearances must have gotten lost in the mail. I mean, I don't know. But yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be back. Hi. Yeah, no, we always like having you on. No, and I wasn't suggesting. Look, if you want to know the truth, there's these two, I do. There's two polls. <laughs> there's in our universe. There's two polls. One of them on one poll is Dahlia Lithwick, who if Dahlia Lithwick is being sworn in as Chief Justice of the United States someday, and we need her to be on the show, she'll probably mm-hmm. just say to whoever swears in the Chief Justice, who probably isn't the Chief Justice, "Excuse me, I have to do this radio show in Hartford." Right. Because uh, it was the first radio show she was ever on. Now on the other end is Jeffrey Tubin, who I used to have on before he was famous. And then mm-hmm. whose whose attitude the, tu- really, the tubes yeah the tubes his subsequent <laughs> attitude when he got famous could be sub, uh, summed up in the title how did you get this number uh, oh, no. so so you want to be closer to Dahlia you know that's the key okay, I, yeah. I think you're yeah, plenty yeah. close I think you're on the commitment close. spectrum I'd like exactly. to be closer to her exactly yes, well 
So I, 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 there's so many places that I, I want to go with this conversation and about these essays, but, but maybe just begin with the fact that, yes, a lot of these essays are, um, although they are, they are genuinely laugh-out-loud funny, they take place in the context of moments where your life is like literally in danger, where a French person is asking you if you're dying um, in, yes. in a very sincere way. You never want a French person asking you that. <laughs> They're so attuned to death, you right. know. But I mean, there's lots of other things like, or it's horrible situations with neighbors, or somebody uh, who 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 does die, or somebody who mm-hmm. you mistakenly think has died, or uh, your struggles with vertigo, and and you, one feels all the poignance of these things while one is laughing. And I one th- one question that I have is, when you're going through these things, is there a little part of your brain that's going, well, this is going to be funny at some point. I hope that's going through everyone's brain. I mean, that's what's funny is there is a way that I, I think, what is it, uh, comedy is tragedy plus time, right? right? And I think everybody knows that in their heart. Um, it can be really hard uh, in extreme, extreme situations. You know, uh, when I was diagnosed uh, with, you know, Meniere's, which is an inner ear disease or a condition, and the only, weirdly, a lot of the only sort of other very public people who have this tend to be musicians, mm. um, which is sort of a kind of comforting because I, I, I mean, at least my career isn't being interfered with. You know, I mean, Kristen Chenoweth has it and she's given interviews about having to be sort of whisked off stage and wicked and everybody thinks it's part of the show and actually she's completely dizzy and done. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so I don't actually think I'm going to write about them. I think I guess I think this will be funny one day, but I don't necessarily, therefore, crystallize it into writing right away. Yeah. Um, usually that takes something that is surprisingly small. It's usually not um, you know, years and years of thought. It's one line or one moment or one image that will sort of throw all those years into sort of sharp relief for me and the story into sharp relief for me. It's like invisible ink that's made visible by something someone says. So my... One example, I mean, if we consider the one I just gave you, the mm-hmm. an essay called Cinema of the Confined about the vertigo. Yes. Um, I wasn't, that was just a pain. Um, you know, it's a pain to call health insurance companies again and again and get hung up on and have to repeat your social security number 50 times. Nobody, and not only is it a pain, but it's not interesting mm-hmm. to anyone. <laughs> um, <laughs> but then that essay, therefore, actually gradually became about how illness is strange, how you enter this sort of new country the way you would with travel writing, except nobody's like, oh, bring me back something from, you know, Dwayne Reed. Nobody's interested. Um, but I wasn't going to write about it at all until a um, a doctor, in an effort to comfort me with no sense of irony whatsoever, said, well, you know, Van Gogh had that. <laughs> and this is a ear affliction. Right. And I think, well, that's something everyone should know. Yeah. <laughs> and look how that turned out. Exactly. Not well. So, I mean, and it, and it instantly became funny in that moment. And then once it starts to become funny, then I think I start down the road of writing about it. The um, uh, First of all, I hate to dash your hopes, but I sort of believe the opposite of what you just said there at the beginning, which is, <laughs> in fact, I gave a speech last week in, in Wichita Falls, Texas, which is oh, somewhere. Oh, I've been there. You've been there? Okay. Well, then you know how I've crazy. I've been to Wichita you Falls. There's how, a university there. Exactly. Yeah. So you know how terrific it is. And I began the yeah. speech by saying there are two kinds of people in this world, and it's a deeper division than liberals and conservatives or atheists and believers. It's people who think they're living in a drama versus people who live that they think that they're living in a comedy. And half 
half the or room. Or are living in a psychodrama? <laughs> <laughs> okay. And when half the room nodded, too. I was speaking in a kind of a banquet room. Half the people in the room nodded when I said that. And, of course, those were the people who thought they were living in a comedy. The people who are li- think that they're living in a drama don't even know that they think that. Right. It's like the Truman Show for them, which ironically is a comedy. <laughs> but yes, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. I mean, I think that, well, I just don't think they narrate um, their lives in the same way. They don't um, see their lives as a series of of sort of interconnected stories. They don't, um, or chapters or however you want to put it. Um, and in a way that gives them this great gift, which means they can enter into any sort of relationship or dialogue with a stranger or even the deepest relationship with their partner um, without writing the script for the other person, which is, I think, something that creative people have a tendency to do, um, to make assumptions uh, based on small, tiny little things. Like the example I gave of, you know, okay, you know Van Gogh had that and me sort of extrapolating a whole essay out from that comment. Um, if you transfer that into real-life behavior, that's, I mean, that's a nightmare. That's, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's someone who, if you said one thing and I'm like, oh, yeah, Colin's the kind of person who does that right. or says that or this is probably what's going to happen with him. So I just, I would say almost, I would divide it either just at a different angle um, between storytellers and not storytellers. I guess that's true. I don't know. I'll tell you a really name-droppy story. I was in a green room of this thing that I was <laughs> I was moderating. It was an onstage conversation uh, that included Jonathan Franzen and John Irving and Azar Nafisi. Mm-hmm. And during the intermission— <laughs> And a duck and a priest and a nun. <laughs> exactly. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, an Iranian, a wrestler, and a, I don't know. Uh, so right. the— um, so we're in the green room during intermission, and John Irving's uh, wife has terrible allergies, and I, she doesn't know what a neti pot is. So I start explaining to her what a neti pot is, and, and suddenly I look across the room, and sitting on the floor with that little Cheshire cat grin of his is Jonathan Franson. And I looked at him, and I said, if this turns into some kind of, you know, really telling story about a particular moment in time where some idiot's talking about a neti pot. I'm going to come up. I'll find you. I'll find you. You know, because there is that, that, that I'm sure there are some people in your life, Sloan, who even think, you know, as they're going through something with you, wow, is she going to write an essay about this? Well, at least with, with narrative nonfiction, at least um, there's a bit of honor among thieves, right? right. Mm-hmm. As opposed to with fiction, <laughs> there's not. Yeah. You know, where you get Jonathan Franzen and his Cheshire Cat grin and, you know, I don't know. He's probably just thinking about birds. I think it's fine. But, but the point is, is that, <laughs> is that we – I don't intentionally go into any situation thinking, ooh, I'm going to write about this. Right. Um, having said that, there is something sort of wonderful about the idea that because I do what I do um, – there's actually almost no such thing as a wholly bad experience for me anymore. It's either fine and just uneventful um, and passes without incident, uh, or it's either funny or awful, and then I turn it into a piece of writing. So there's not—it's like this weird sort of cushion. But so I don't actually, though, I'm not like this narc among my friends where I'm just constantly (laughs) taking notes. Um, Mm -hmm. I think it would make life insufferable for all parties involved. You, but I do. Yeah. But for fiction, fiction is much. That's 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 sort of the misconception is people think, oh, like don't write an essay about this. And it's I, not to be. This is going to be horribly insulting. But when people say that, I'm generally like, it's a little bit when a, a child tells you, don't read my diary, yeah. and you're like, I, I'm on it. I don't. <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> I'm not going to. This right. is about the prism of you know. These are they're only 
you know, there's 16 essays in this book. It took me three years to write. What are the chances? You know, um, it's more for fiction that it, fiction is the free for all. Yeah. Because you have all these characters. You have all these, you know, anybody else. You have, you know, so many made up personalities who could observe what you just did. And it's much more dangerous to be around a fiction writer than it is to be around me. Right. Because you could wind up being the jerk talking about the nitty pot. Although I'm working on a novel, so now all right. bets are off. Exactly. There you go. <laughs> so, you know, was there uh, – well, first of all, I want to say that what you're doing right now to me – and this could be just my own really flawed perspective – but what you're doing right now in terms of writing these really beautifully crafted and very, very funny personal essays, it, it feels like a form whose heyday was – like the 1940s or something, you know, when there was right. this sort of, you know, the New Yorker infield. Joseph Mitchell kind of. Yeah, and and, and then you had S.J. Perlman and E.B. White and, and Dorothy mm-hmm. Parker and, and James Thurber. And, and I feel like today people are sort of bombarded with all kinds of stuff. There are all kinds of ways to reach people. And it's, it's, it's so beautiful that you're still doing this and so pleasing to people like me. But do you feel that at all? Like this is something that you're doing that's a little bit bucking the tide of culture. I do. I find that so strange, though, Mm -hmm. because it didn't feel like that when I started out. It's happened really quickly. So in other words, you know, it's not like you're like, wow, you're like a classically trained opera singer in a world where you could have been a pop singer. You could have been (laughs) all these other things. And or, you know, you're why you're still writing on parchment and you're you know choosing (laughs) to do or or even, you know, like, that's a thing now. The artists are like, oh, we make chocolate the old-fashioned way. I mean, I have no idea how anyone makes chocolate. But the point is, is that, <laughs> um, is that it? when I published, I was told there'd be cake. It didn't feel old-fashioned. It felt a little temporarily abandoned. Mm-hmm. So you had Megan Dom and Nora Ephron. But then really, it was... Uh, really long time no crazy salad and definitely long time before I feel bad about my neck because um, mm-hmm. I was told her BK came out in 2008. Megan Dom's My Misspent Youth I'm going to say is 2001, 2002 mm-hmm. maybe. And then there were just there were boys. There was um, you know the Davids, David Rockoff, mm-hmm. David Sedaris. There was Bill Bryson. But even Irma Bombach if we're going to sort of draw a sort of DNA line between this gen, I mean, I don't, my, none of the writers I've named, nor is my writing like hers, and yet, mm-hmm. let's just put her in. Right. And she's wonderful, but it, I mean, she's a sort of figure from my childhood. Mm-hmm. So it just felt this, like, like this sort of, um, it was like publishing poetry. Right. And in terms of um, sales expectation, expectations. Um, and then, not just not because of I was told there'd be cake or I have no idea, but it, things sort of started to change and celebrities got um, started publishing a lot of essays. And um, but then very quickly, the form kind of became sort of bastardized, for lack of a better word. Um, and there were, you know, tons and tons of these pieces being written where everybody had a personal essay and it wasn't personal essays. It was just sort of these kind of diary entry type stories <laughs> or like, you know, a lot of young women especially being paid, you know, $125 to tell their absolute most embarrassing story about, you know, a, a childhood trauma. It was really nuts. And then I think stuff like what I do then sort of, I wouldn't say rose up, but sort of separated itself as being old-fashioned. Right. But when I started, it actually just felt like uh, to the side, mm-hmm. not to the past and not to the future, but to the side. Um, and now, you know, with 
the advent of Al Gore's internet and <laughs> and Twitter and all you know all these different platforms, which can be really great, um, but it also now feels old fashioned to have a book of essays that aren't necessarily hyper political. Um, they're not hyper taking a stance, except for the stance of you know general grumpiness, um, <laughs> and it does feel a little old fashioned. I, I also think But it that, didn't. No, right. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I also feel as though, I feel that, and once again, this could be just me, be me. There's a way uh, that humor can seize you when it's on the page, which is really qualitatively different. And for me, much more intense than a really funny movie or somebody's stand-up special on HBO or on Pick Something Else. Uh, there's a way in which... Um, there, I, the, I don't, and I don't, I've never quite understood how to describe it. I was on a public bus rant one time reading Mark Lehner, uh, and I started laughing so hard that it's pretty hard to stand out on public transportation as me having <laughs> something wrong with you, you know? Depends but, on the city. <laughs> it's true. Um, but people were looking at me, you know, because I couldn't stop laughing. And, and I did, I, I guess the question I'm about to ask is was, was there stuff like that for you before you became who you are now, were you reading stuff and going, oh, yeah, that's what I wanted. I want to I want to do that Nora Ephron thing. I want to do that. Um, well, two things. One, I will say quickly first that I think it's because comedy more than anything else is about timing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, everyone knows this. Um, and that's true for any form of comedy, um, really stand up, um, you know, comedic novels, comedic narration, whatever it is. Um, but then if you. But with reading it, then it's about your timing, too. So mm-hmm. I think that's why you laugh so hard, because you can control the timing. Right. You can stop and do that. And so that's why I think it's so much more powerful when it's written. Um, and But in terms of who I read, I mean, I didn't read Nora Ephron until pretty late. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember reading like I read a lot of Annie Dillard. Mm-hmm. I read a lot of David Rockoff, um, Joan Didion, who is a laugh riot. Um, she really is. I know she's like the queen of death with the two memoirs, but she's really <laughs> very, very subtle and very funny. Um, and she doesn't get enough credit for it, um, which is fine. She gets enough credit for other things, but still. Um, and then I think it was more like when I was a kid, I loved – like, I love The Far Side. I loved Edward Gorey. That sensibility sort of was uh, branded into me pretty early on or self-branded. Um, and then I think I just – I love Rick Russo. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think what else. Sam Lipsight, Dorothy Parker. These people are all people who I've always found just very, very funny. When when I was first getting interested in, in trying to write and publishing books of humor in the 1980s, Roy Blunt Jr. was somebody who I oh, I, I read his fantastic. work and I, and I thought I want to yeah. I want to do that I want to write just like that. Uh, and um, I mean, Laurie Moore I felt that way about for a long time, but not because she's funny. Right. I just wanted to write like Laurie Moore because she's fantastic. When I went up in, in this is before there was literally before there was email, so I went up having a. Uh, correspondence, a male correspondence with Roy Blunt Jr. And he said oh. something, at one t- he wrote something in a letter one time that really, he also got me my agent and all kinds of other stuff, but uh, he, that reminded, that came to mind reading this book. Um, and he said that humor needs to be funnier than necessary. 
that you can say something that's funny, and so that that's kind of fine. But if you're really writing humor, it needs to be funnier than necessary. He says he said it needs to be like Christmas, where there's just so many presents under the tree, you don't know what to do. <laughs> um, and I, there's a line, and I'm going to read to you from your book that I that really struck me this way. And it's sort of because there's two beats in it. There's like a very funny thing, and then a beat after it. So this is um, from my favorite essay in the book. It's called Relative Stranger. It's about a relative of yours. You, you call him Uncle Johnny, but he's actually somebody's your parents' cousin or something? My mom's cousin, Your yeah. mom's cousin. And he, has for much, for a decade of his life, had been a, a porn actor, and then had also gone on to play sort of behind-the-camera roles in the porn industry. But he's very counterintuitive from that description. He's this very sort of gentle, uh, thoughtful kind of guy. Uh, and so you're describing... Um, uh, his particular approach to, to that life, and you say um, uh, all Uncle Johnny wanted was to take his work home with him because he was at that time looking, for, hoping he'd find a girlfriend, but anyway, which in a way he did, just not in the way he hoped. He got to know the industry so well, he made a booklet of tips for guys getting into porn for the first time. When I ask him if it was called Just the Tips, he stares at me blankly. Okay, that's funnier than necessary because just the tips is a very funny joke. But the fact that's that also he, true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> also, I mean, yeah. all of that is true. Both my response and and the fact that he he really did right. want to do that. Yeah, and the fact that he stares at you blankly afterwards is to to me that's the thing that pushes it over the line into funnier than necessary. I mean, you had a pretty good joke uh, there, <laughs> but the fact that he just you know had no reaction to it whatsoever is somehow or other even more delicious. Well, I think the thing is, in that instance, it's because I'm trying to eventually build to a point where another I make another dirty joke at another point in our, during our conversation, and I say that he looks at me as if I'm trying to sexualize a trip to the mailbox, yeah. like he's just completely befuddled. Like I don't, and then at some point it dawns on me that his life has been so chock a block with innuendo yes. and sex jokes. He was a porn star. That he just that's it. That, that there's no room at the end. <laughs> um, which is a real mixed metaphor for his vocation. But I guess um but in general I think you know to uh, to the Roy Blunt point uh and in general I think I think that as a writer, you are a volunteer. And I think that's what basically he was saying. Mm -hmm. No one, I mean, it's a very dark view of the arts in some ways, but nobody really needs you. Right. You know, there's a dead isle, desert island and there's, you know, a doctor and a carpenter <laughs> and me. Yeah. Like, I get eaten. Right. I've also been sitting around eating cheese in my apartment for like <laughs> three years straight. Um, I definitely get eaten. And... But so as as disheartening as that can possible that can be when you're trying to work, <laughs> it can also be something that's fuel to remember that you sort of have an obligation to entertain people. And I think when you forget that, and you just become so obsessed with your own voice and your own writing, and and it can be dangerous. I mean, the other side of that though, and when you first started to say that theory about it being like little Christmas presents, I'm like. Mm. I don't know. I don't know if I totally – I think I agree with the motivation because mm -hmm. it dovetails very nicely with what I just said. Like you have an obligation right. to, to give people things. Um, but I know that I tend to weed out a lot of jokes from my writing mm -hmm. um, because I think they distract from the larger point and it can look like I'm laughing at myself too much. And if I just go after every piece of low-hanging fruit and make everything total verbal pyrotechnics, it can actually be kind of hard to follow and – also, when I'm, you know, I read the audiobook, it, it's hard to read it even. Right. 
I, one thing that I like that you do, too, is you often let us complete the joke in our head, which a lot of writers don't trust the reader to do. There's a scene where you talk about a French woman who backed up her car and swerved either to miss a horse or a pile of hair. Uh, and so if you speak any French at all, you get what that joke is, but you don't bother to explain the joke to us, which I... I <laughs> so these two words sound very similar. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Um, so we're talking to Sloan Crosby right now. Her, her book is Look Alive Out There. Uh, if you need the jokes explained, I'm sure there's some online service that can help you. Uh, we're going to take a quick My phone break. number is right. the online service. <laughs> right. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, we're going to take a quick, quick break, but we're going to do it with uh, her one known songwriting credit uh, as the Mumper Music. Lay silent in her folded hands and head to headstone I just danced oblivious to consequences morning sank into the ground the highest branch I sought it out oh I didn't mean to let it go I didn't mean to bruise but I lost I should say that Andy Barowitz will be stopping by for the final segment of the show, but right now we're with Sloan Crosley. Her new collection of essays is Look Alive Out There. So how many radio shows have you been on where anybody bothered to track down that song? None. <laughs> Precisely none. I've tallied them up, and the total is zero. Right. Um, I That song, that's a friend of mine who um, is slash uh, was the lead singer of the band Fun, um, and we were in Los Angeles, and I was having a pretty fun night. And he said, you know, I, I really want you to write a song with me. And I, I said, I don't know how to do that. It's a bad idea. There's this misconception people have about writers um, that, you know, if you if you don't work in writing at all, that we could do, I could write a poem or I should write a play. Yeah. And I'm like, it's not so transferable. I'm not going to ask you to, like, play jazz flute, you know? <laughs> um but I did it, and it's, it's so depressing. Um, <laughs> the song is called. Really... It, the song is called. It only gets much worse. We should tell you. Yeah, the the, the 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 chorus says, um, "I can't stand to hear you say it hurts because it only gets much worse." Um, but you know, we had a great time doing it, which you can't tell in the song. There were a lot of burritos and, and late nights, but you just can't. You can't. Oh no, you can you can hear those burritos. Are you kidding? <laughs> you can. Yeah. You, you can you need, hear the. You queso. need good headphones. You need good headphones, and then you can hear the exactly, burritos. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so um, that's a wrap. I'm sorry. <laughs> I apologize for everything I've done. Okay, go ahead. We're actually do, we're doing we're doing a show on puns very soon. You're welcome back. You know. Now, oh. That's why we played the song. We want you to be more of a Dahlia Lithwick and less of a Justin. Oh, Tudor. good. So. Um, <laughs> You know, I actually did uh, was reading your book in uh, Wichita Falls, Texas, in a Mexican restaurant called the Gutierrez. I've been to the Mexican restaurant. Well, just, there's, there's the I'm one. Very that the, excited that we've both been to Wichita Falls. Yeah, Texas. No, the, but it's there's one exciting. in town that the white people go to, and then there, you literally drive across the tracks, and there's this thing called the Gutierrez Family Restaurant, and that's where you want to go. Except, oh that, man, uh, well, I went with students. Right. I was speaking to students. They might have taken you. So there. I went. I was at their yeah. sort of. Um, but I was so I was sitting there reading this uh, essay near the beginning of the book, and it's um, this it's a it's really an unusual essay. It's about um, an apartment that you got that I think is in the West Village, uh, where there was this incredibly annoying teenage neighbor uh, who. <laughs> Well, I'll let you take over. I, I don't know if there's a way to tell this story because it, it's a it's one of the longer essays in the Without book. Without ruining and, it? Well, <laughs> there's that. Yeah, I, I don't know. It fascinated me, though, because I think it is sort of something that everybody can experience at some level, right? There's always 
at some point in your life, you are stuck with somebody that you cannot get away from, uh, or at least that you're not willing to take the dire steps it would take to get away right. from them. And you, I don't know, you inject that with a lot of drama, but also a certain amount of comedy. There's, there are two essays in this book um, that I, I'm realizing that I, I tend to, you know, in the sort of privacy of my conversations with my editor, tend to refer to as the mother of all X essays. Um, and so the, the last essay called The Doctor is a Woman, I, I say is the mother of all like female fertility essays. Um, <laughs> and Outside Voices, which is the one you're discussing, which comes at the beginning of the collection, I say is the mother of all noise complaint essays. Mm. Like, let this be like the one ring to rule them all. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Where I just am gradually driven, truly not cute, adorable, like wacky rom-com insane by this kid, but really nuts and and take measures to to try to shut him up. Um, And but basically the way it works is it has to his sort of infractions minor as they may be have to be ratcheted up in a certain way um, so that by the time I take my revenge, the reader is on my side and not thinking, oh, my gosh. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, you know, but I do say I describe that they used to leave the music on after they left. They lived in a a single family owned uh, brownstone uh, behind me, this very sort of wealthy family with these two teenage kids uh, and parents who were sort of, you know, the cool parents, much to my chagrin. And they would do things like leave the music on blaring like after they left, which mm-hmm. I describe as a tactic generally employed by war criminals. Um, right. they're That's how they got Noriega just, out, I think. Yeah, they're horrible. And they would – I mean I could Shazam them from my living room, right. which is like, hi, you're too close, you know. And so basically as they got worse – and but in order to sort of separate it out from just a litany of noise complaints, which everyone has – and in addition to talking about how much they infiltrate my life, it becomes an essay about generations and about right. how I guess was so desperate for them to grow up. But of course, like, I can't wait for you. I have to grow up, too, <laughs> while I'm waiting for you. And so it becomes a sort of rumination on the passage of time. And um, there are also, like, class issues in it and, and how well we know our neighbors and there's gender issues in it. So I fold in all this stuff, hopefully, to really try to drive at the heart of like why is it that it drives you so insane why is like 311 you know if you did like a pie graph of the phone calls 311 receives i'm sure that like the the largest color would be noise complaints maybe followed by parking violations um it's just it's just this and i call it you know even in the essay a sort of kind of placebo service for cranks on the brink um <laughs> but yeah so that essay is really Again, I keep endeavoring to, A, make dark things funny and to, B, try to um, give meaning and layers and universality to stories that might otherwise just be me saying, you know, don't you just hate it when. Right. And I think the fact that you risk a lot of yourself in these essays uh, is what makes it more. Yeah, they're embarrassing, a a lot of them. (laughs) Well, you know, there's a couple of things in this essay that I think are really interesting. One of them is, you know, the, the this teenager and then eventually his successor who are tormenting you with this music and partying and all this kind of stuff. In a way, they're 
versions of how can I put this? Uh, it, it's not like a bunch of yahoos are out there uh, playing really loud country music or stuff. Something instead. Oh, they're they're going to grow up and be masters of the, un- of the universe right. and, and work and, at J.P. Morgan. And, and, and yeah. when you're shazamming yeah. them, sometimes you're shazamming them because well, that's a pretty good song there actually. I know. And, and there's one moment where you're with a gentleman friend and you are apparently visible from the yard and uh-huh. uh, there's some hollering starts up and I think Jared uh, yells up to you, "What's the relationship?" And your male friend says. That's a pretty sophisticated level of taunting. Yes. He's like, you have to admit, that's a pretty seasick. You know, I mean, basically, um, Jared, not his real name. Um, <laughs> I should say that I changed it. Um, and he's a young kid. And it had to be um, Jewish for the story. And I thought to myself, like, what is the name of a young <laughs> rich Jewish kid who has more than he should, who the whole country is annoyed at right now. <laughs> and somehow Jared just miraculously yeah. <laughs> popped into my brain. Um, <clears throat> but so, yes, Jared catches a glimpse of us naked, basically. I neglected to, to close the blinds properly. And instead of just being an immature kid, he's this New York City kid, and that's the sort of weird relationship I have with him where part of me is so disgusted by his brattiness and part of me is like wow you know more at 16 than maybe I'll ever know um and he was just cool and I became sort of it's embarrassing to admit but I was sort of felt even worse about being such a premature curmudgeon and telling him to be quiet all the time but then again he was keeping me up at like three in the morning teaching himself how to play go on with your bad self on the guitar so (laughs) you know these things happen but when he didn't just say, he didn't just sort of whistle. He was like, what's the relationship? Which right. is such a cutting, crazy thing to say. Yeah, um, yeah I, I feel like there's a lot in that essay. It's, it's, a, <laughs> it's a personal favorite of mine. All right, so there's this, do you have your co- a copy of your book with you right now? I do. I okay. did. I came prepared. So th- there's this two. thing that NPR hosts do, which I kind of hate and I never do it. Uh, put me on the spot? <laughs> no, which is, no, I'm happy to put you on the spot. But um, but I, I the NPR hosts are always saying, could you read something from your book? Well, either that or authors will say to me, do you mind if I read something from my book? And I'm usually, I've only really- Why uh, are they Kermit? Yeah, I've only ever interviewed Muppet authors before you. <laughs> so uh, you're my first non-cloth-based author. But, um, but I am going to have you just read one paragraph because I, I think it's such a sure. beautifully touching and revelatory- um, uh, paragraph. It's from that same essay that I say is my uh, favorite essay. It's the one about your Uncle Johnny. It's a, it starts at the bottom of 139, and probably to set it up, we should say that 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 Johnny has oddly enough gone into the porn industry because he wanted to find like a, a permanent woman for his life. He wanted to fall in love mm-hmm. and live with that person forever. So you make a kind of interesting comparison, and it starts the first two lines are at the bottom of 139. If you okay. could just read that paragraph, yeah. Well, I have not been frequenting strip clubs in the hopes of finding a excuse me. <laughs> well, I have not been frequenting strip clubs in the hopes of snagging a soulmate. I have become increasingly attracted to unrealistic or unobtainable men. I have broken things off with them or vice versa, but each relationship feels quicker than the one before it. This is a problem everyone I know seems to have encountered in their 20s, but has spontaneously outgrown in their 30s. One day you look around and the most romantically remedial people imaginable are signing leases with whole human beings, getting wistful about their former proclivities for drunks and sociopaths. I attempt to participate in these conversations, nodding along. How stupid we all once were. But I am only thinking of the phone in my pocket where some cleverly flirtatious text might await me. 
I am in my mid-30s, and I seem to be working in reverse, going from long relationships that aren't wonderful to short relationships that aren't horrible. See, one of the reasons I love that paragraph, Sloan Crosley, is, as I was saying before, a lot of these essays could be sort of observational. Isn't this horrible? Doesn't this suck when this happens? But there's a lot of you that's risked in that in that paragraph. There's a lot of you, yeah. more, more than a lot of humor, strictly humor writers would put on the line, right? I think there is, and it's so funny because I don't... Um you know, when you, you think of your schema of your home or uh, a time in your life or elementary school and, and really if you try to actually just sort of um, narrow it down, certain things pop up. You know, a, a mural, this, this sort of corroded block you used to take as the hall pass when you were a kid or, or like certain things in your living room. And when I think of my writing, I tend to think of the humor and I think maybe there's something deeply psychological about like I read a paragraph like that and I... It's like I was in a fugue state when I wrote it in order to write something that revealing, you know. And so I, I never – I don't talk about it as much as is actually in there, which is probably not very selling for the book. <laughs> <laughs> Although people do like funny things. That's good. But, yes. you know, there is something to be said about knowing that there's this uh, deeper layer in there. But uh, I, I'm, I can never come up with examples, so I'm happy you made me read that. <laughs> Well, there you go. You've got your example. Uh, this is Thanks. It's been a pleasure, as it was in the past, and I hope it will be in the future, talking to you, Sloane Crosley. Uh, the book is Look Alive out there. Essays, read these essays. Be in a place where you won't be embarrassed if you laugh, because you will laugh. But you might also tear up a little bit, too. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. Enjoy Andy. All right. Yes. We are going to switch over. Uh, we're going to take a little break here. We're going to switch over to Andy Borowitz, uh, and who's also a very, very funny writer, but I think in a radically different way from Sloan. Uh, and so anyway, that's that's what you have to look forward to. Stomach hurt the next morning. Josh was that guy, witty as hell. Just knew one day that dude was going to be on SNL. Next Chris Farley, what about you, money? He was so funny that it wasn't even funny. It's too bad being funny and being happy ain't the same thing. It ain't the same thing. So ordinarily at this point of the show, Kyan Wolf comes on and explains who did what. Uh, she is in Spain at the moment, so that would not be convenient for her to do. So I will say that this uh, show was produced by Betsy Kaplan. Jonathan McNichol has been in the, on the board where Kyan Wolf usually is. I don't know who else did. Is Carlos in there? No, he's not in there, right? Okay. I don't know who else to thank. Uh, the part of Bill Curry was played by Al Cap. I have to say why I just said that, which is that um, Albert Brooks used to do this routine where he mentioned going to do a comedy performance on a college campus. And he said, you're always greeted by the president of the student body who goes, we had Al Cap here last week. He's a witty guy. <laughs> sort of the dread of every funny person to be described as a witty guy, you know, like Al Cap. Anyway, tomorrow on the show, it's The Nose, our weekly cultural roundtable. I know we're talking a lot about Donald Glover, who really kind of has emerged suddenly, not simply as an arch cultural commentator, but maybe the leading cultural commentator of a certain kind with the kinds of performances that he's doing musically and comedically right now. So he's not on the show. I don't want to get your hopes up. Uh, joining us right now is somebody I can get your hopes up about, and that would be Andy Borowitz. I barely need to tell you who Andy Borowitz is. You're all public radio listeners, which means you're all New Yorker subscribers. But Andy Borowitz, a comedian and the creator of the Borowitz Report, uh, which is a satirical news column, now appears in The New Yorker. Uh, he's currently on a national comedy tour called Make America Not 
not embarrassing again. And said comedy tour will be coming to the Palace Theater. Oh, I think it's a week from tomorrow by my re- No, tomorrow? No, wait a First of all, I'm getting everything wrong. Tomorrow is the show that we're doing about smoking in movies and why that's interesting. I've, I'm a day off about everything. This is why things like this shouldn't be turned over to me. Uh, but anyway, so a week from Friday, May 18th, uh, Andy Barowitz will be at the Palace Theater in Stamford. How many more things can I screw up here? Uh, at 8 p.m. for his show, Make America Not Embarrassing Again. You can buy tickets online at the Palace Theater, which is palacestamford.org. Get your Andy Barowitz tickets right now. Okay, now we actually have time for Andy Barowitz. Uh, welcome to our show and its bumbling host. <laughs> Thank you, Colin. It's an honor to be here talking to you. Well, it's an o- honor to have you here. I guess I want to talk, you know, I, I was um, popping onto the New Yorker website, and I noticed, um, and I don't know how recently this has been the case, or maybe it's always been the case, but uh, it felt like there was kind of in a big font the word satire. And, and I wondered... <laughs> I wondered if, given the current moment that we're in, it's more and more important. I'm finding it more and more important to tell people whether something is a joke or not. And, of course, your work treads so closely. It kind of runs its thumb down that knife's edge of what is true and what could almost be true. Well, it's always been a problem with satire. Um, People have always, especially if it's of the deadpan variety, which is what I do, Mm -hmm. uh, people always have had a problem distinguishing it from reality. And uh, to, to show you that I majored in English in college, and I got one fact out of that four-year endeavor, uh, when Jonathan Swift in the 18th century wrote his most famous piece of satire, A Modest Proposal, um, where he was proposing that, you know, that the, the poor in, in England eat their young, um, everybody pretty much thought it was real news. They Mm -hmm. thought it was a real opinion, not satire, including um, the Queen of England at the time. So it's not exactly a new problem, but I I must say it's gotten to be a bigger problem in the the post-Trump era. I mean, once you elect a game show host, president of the United States, um, the whole issue of what is real and what is a joke um, becomes elevated. Right, and your New Yorker colleague, Emily Nussbaum, like an hour before I went on the air, I think, dropped this essay, which I could barely have time to, to, to speed read for this, kind of suggesting that that, in a way, has become a problem because at some level, he is this obnoxious stadium comedian, you know, that, that at some level, he himself uh, is exploiting some of the tropes of comedy. Uh, it's often hard to tell how wittingly he's doing it, but I, th- I think at least some of the time, right? Yeah, you know, he is, um, I will say something about Donald Trump. He, he, I don't think he's a smart person at all, but mm-hmm. I do think he's talented. Mm-hmm. I think there's a big distinction. <laughs> um, he has, there, there's a, a term that psychologists, I actually think a psychiatrist at Harvard Medical School came up with this um, concept called an island of competence. Mm-hmm. And what it is basically is, Colin, I don't know if you, you have anybody in your life like this, but somebody who's, you know, really a mess in every aspect of his or her life, but is an incredibly great gardener, and mm-hmm. his gardening is just phenomenal. And in Donald Trump's case, uh, drawing attention to himself is his island of competence. He's he's been good at it for decades. For any of us who've lived in the tri-state area um, and and nationally, he's he's always been great at dominating uh, the conversation. Um, and uh, this has come in very very handy. Uh, for a malignant narcissist. It's a great it's a great island of competence to have. 
Um, I, my version of that comes from my significant other who, you can't steal this. It's so perfect, but you can't <laughs> steal it. She, one of her uh, adages is, everybody is an idiot savant. The process of life is figuring out which thing they're an idiot about and which thing they're a savant about. Uh, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and in Trump's case, I think I've already nailed it. So that process is over. Right. Now I've determined what his one area of, um, his one island of competence is. But it's, especially in the social media age, it's very useful because, you know, he can go on his Twitter feed and basically just derail the conversation for the next four hours. And I am choosing as a writer and as a comedian to kind of disengage from the, the moment by moment um, Trumpism and, and try to sort of take a step back from it a little bit. Because I, I agree with Emily's uh, premise that it's, it's you know, he, he's already being this kind of Andrew Dice Clay figure. <laughs> and, so, and so you don't want to, you can't exaggerate that. That would be a, a hideous mistake. Right. I, 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 during the campaign, I came to the conclusion, I, I have yet to prove this, that he, as a young man, owned a copy of Don Rickles' album, Hello, Dummy. <laughs> um, because I can hear I can hear beats from it in there. And I'll give you an example. Uh, it was a oft quoted outrage of a thing that he said, but I actually do think that he thought he was being funny. Uh, he was saying something about uh, he said Hillary Clinton. Uh, you know, she gets elected president. There's nothing you can do. Beat. Well, Second Amendment people, maybe there's something you can do. Right, um, I remember that. Yeah. yeah, and to me. I could hear the Rickles beat right in there, you know. Mm-hmm. That's like a thing that that that, and so he. I think he does. He does have some weird, primitive, atavistic, uh, <laughs> but ultimately destructive comic skills. Uh, no, he he does. I mean, he uh, uh, and he's look. I mean, he is also a great um, improv performer, and I mean that seriously because to stand at one of those, you know, in front of one of those sort of rally crowds, you know, Nuremberg style events that he holds. <laughs> And go up there without notes, but basically just go on for an hour and a half with his grievances and insults and threats. Um, it's pretty impressive. Most, most of us would run out of things to be angry about after about four minutes, <laughs> especially if we were born with like $100 million. Right. You know, we'd, we really would run out of grievances pretty fast. But he, he is really like, you know, it's like one of those, you know, porn name generators on the internet. <laughs> you know, he just can generate grievances um, in this in this remarkably fertile way. It's impressive. Actually, I guess that's a second island of competence. Right. That's a project for somebody too, like a Donald Trump grievance generator. You can put <laughs> like you know just various lists of perpetrators, like Mexicans and Iranians. Well, and, and also like just that. what the form that his grievances take. I mean, since I'm often writing, putting words in his mouth, it's always things are very unfair. There, he's been treated very unfairly. It's a disgrace. Things are dis, uh, disgraceful. Um, quite frankly, it's a disgrace. We're looking into that. It's a disgrace. We're going to get rid of it. I mean, he just he does have this kind of um, patter of of anger and grievance that um, you know he can apply to pretty much any situation he doesn't like. So I, I want to quickly ask. Uh, you know, you're doing this uh, gig in Stanford on on Friday, May 18th. Um, uh, is it stand-up? I mean, I, I assume you'll have the Andy Borowitz dancers with you. I, I always <laughs> enjoy them. But uh, what do you do uh, in, in a show like this one? Well, you know, it's it's three things really. It is stand-up. I've always I, stand-up has always been part of the menu of things that I do. It's it's nice. It gets me out of the house. You know, when you're mm-hmm. when you're writing, um, you know, a, a, a web column as I do and I have done for almost twenty years. There's a, a real tendency never to 
shave or put on pants. Mm-hmm. And so this is an, 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 a way of getting me to do both of those things. Um, and so I, I like having that um, interaction with the audience. And so I do some stand-up, and then I do um, uh, what we call a moderated conversation, where basically a very a person who is smarter than I am, in this case, your public radio colleague, Mr. Brian Lehrer from WNYC, uh, is coming on stage to interview me for um, about 45 minutes. And then I take questions from the audience for about half an hour. So it's actually, in def- you know, I guess kind of in, in a tribute to Donald Trump, um, almost all of it's improvised. About 15 minutes at the beginning is stuff that I've prepared for the event. But pretty much the rest of the show, one show to the next, is completely different. So, um, so that's kind of fun. For me, and it's it's fun for the audience too because we we kind of discover things together, which is kind of cool. <laughs> have you worked with Brian Lehrer before? Have you done this before? With um, him? Brian, I have been on his show yeah. in New York. I've never done something live on stage with him. But right. but one thing that's been nice about doing this tour, which is really just beginning, we've just done a few dates uh, on the East Coast, is that because I have a different uh, interlocutor in in each um, venue, the it hasn't gotten stale where people are just kind of, you know, throwing me the same stuff. There's some, some obvious questions that come up again and again, but just the dynamic of, of having a different, um, a different person on stage with me each time has kept it really interesting for me, and I, I hope for the audience, too. Right. I've been on his show a few times, and I found that he occasionally will ask me a question that I really embarrassingly don't know the answer to. So <laughs> don't be surprised if he suddenly turns to you and says, Andy... What do you think in terms of the Trans-Pacific Trade Partnership the, about the way they treat aluminum alloy derivatives? <laughs> you, know? you know, any any question that requires me to have an in-depth understanding <laughs> of the news is really a bad way to go. I am, you know, people ha- are under this misapprehension that I somehow am a news expert, and I actually have the the least um, uh, profound understanding of what's going on in the world. I tend to look at sort of the big picture, which means. I look at headlines, but I don't actually click on them. So that's kind of where my understanding of, of things like, you know, TPP or whatever it is right. um, goes. I've absolutely, I'm so glad that you mentioned the word aluminum because yeah. now I know it even deals with that. No, I don't even, I made that up. I think I would, if he brings that up, just go right into the PP part. You know, <laughs> I think you'll be fine. Andy Borowitz will be at the Palace Theater in Stanford on Friday. Get your tickets, 8 p.m. for the show. Make America not embarrassing again. Buy those ticket, tickets from the Palace Theater, palacestanford.org. Consider your show plugged, and thank you so much for doing this, Andy. Thanks so much, Colin. Bye-bye. Okay. And we have to say goodbye to you now. Reluctantly, we have to pass you along to some other radio show. People we don't even know. We don't even know if they'll treat you as well as we treated you. But uh, we hope that you feel treated well here today. And uh, thanks to Betsy Kaplan again for producing, Jonathan for running the board, and anybody else who uh, in any way stood still for the goings-on here. Uh, thank you, too. Comedian. I miss my friends tonight